he looked over at his manager and tapped him. And this is ducking down behind the DJ booth about to start his set. And it points to the manager and the manager points to the video wall behind him. And Avicii looks over at me, smiles, and gives me like a thumbs up. And I was like, oh man, like this is huge. Hello and welcome to another episode of TOTS. I'm your host, Ben Gardner. I am so glad that you decided to join us today. This is my interview with Jay Nightride. Now, Jay Nightride is one of the best video jockeys in the industry. He works with some of the biggest names, including Steve Aoki. This guy is super cool. Today, we're going to cover topics ranging from coronavirus's effect on the music industry and on his industry as a whole, and what to do when you have food poisoning and still have to do a set. All that and more is going to be covered. Let's get into it. Jay, welcome to Tots. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. Stoked. Awesome. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do? Awesome, man. So uh, a lot of people uh, know me as the VJ for Steve Aoki. Uh, that's my main gig uh, personally. But I also run a company called Night Ride Visuals. And what we do as a team as well as what I do for Steve is we uh, we perform live visuals and create content for touring artists. So if you go see a big performance or you see something on TV like American Idol or the Grammys or stuff like that. There's always big video walls behind the artists. And we uh, we create the content that goes on those walls uh, for Steve and for other performers. And then we also trigger it live. So we're often on tour exploring the world and pushing buttons and basically getting paid to play video games. That's really cool. So what does a video jockey do specifically during these shows or during these performances? Cool. So there's a lot of different methods to video jockeying, but the the overall aspect is that we are triggering clips live um, while the artists are triggering music. Some some VJs like to use what's called time code, where it's very synced and it's more of um, um, selecting and letting things run themselves. And then our team primarily does live VJing, so we actually trigger the cues as the songs are playing. So. Every time the artist chooses a song, we're going through our library and picking content to match that song. Wow. So I would imagine you would have to be, even with coordination, pretty uh, quick with your fingers, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, it, it's really exhilarating. It's kind of, it's, it's very similar to video games in the way that it's a, it's all an uh, eye, ear and hand coordination game. You know, it's like you're, you're constantly listening for changes and, and different different aspects of the music and then you're reacting live to make sure that the visual performance matches what the audience is hearing. Sure. Tell me about a time when you messed that up and you just completely fell on your face and failed. <laughs> oh man. I mean, you know, there's been a few moments, but nothing, nothing too crazy comes to mind. I think, um, we've gotten really good at, at troubleshooting. I mean, when I started for sure, I mean, it's usually technical issues more like, you know, a projector gets knocked over or a drink gets spilled on a computer. Um, I, I've definitely had that situation happen in my early days, but you learn really quick to, to combat issues and have backups on backups. So we'll have a backup laptop and a hard drive with all the content. So even if a computer goes down, it's never really a nightmare situation. But uh, there's, there's always little things like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like with anything, uh, the biggest variable isn't what's going on with your computer or anything like that. It's the human error, like spilling a drink or knocking something over like that. Yeah, it's the unexpected. It's like it's not it's not a matter of me forgetting or messing something up, but more a matter of my environment. It's like, OK, cool. This guy's yelling in my ear or 
you know, this this fan bumped into me because there wasn't enough barricade in front of house or, you know, something stupid like that. Um, sure. You know, there's, there's been a time or two um, when Steve has released new music and maybe I uh, triggered an old clip or something. And then Dylan, our tour manager, will text me and be like, hey, man, like that's not the right song. But um, <laughs> like, what the hell you know, are you doing? <laughs> yeah, we've gotten a lot better at communicating. I mean, and that's, you know, five, six years ago when we were starting with Steve, I think we were learning a lot. And now it's, uh, you know, it's just like with any team or family, you get used to each other and how to communicate and now we know how to avoid situations like that. So uh, the shows have become pretty seamless, which is good. Sure. So we know where you are now. You're working with one of the largest, if not the largest DJs in the world. Uh, But where did you start and what was that process like? Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting path because I had, uh, I started working in bands. I was, I was playing guitar and, and, and playing just local bands in Massachusetts outside of Boston. And, um, that turned into me running lights for my band because I was like, Oh, it'd be cool if we had some production, but I don't know anything about it. So I started looking up forums and, you know, looking up the cheap lights and how I could make them react and what controllers to buy. Um, and after the band sort of broke up, I was kind of lost and it was, this is after college. So we're talking 2010. I was really lost into what I wanted to do. I was going to master's school for, uh, education. I was planning on teaching high school and, uh, I had started, going to nightclubs in Boston, um, particularly my first real nightclub experience was the Middle East downstairs in Cambridge at uh, a party called Throad, which was this old dubstep party in the basement. And uh, it really wasn't like a traditional nightclub. It was more just like a college party. Um, It was 18 plus and uh, it was really raunchy and sweaty and grimy and everything you imagine a basement party would be like. Yeah. It fit Sounds like, like fun. <laughs> oh man, I mean, yeah, those were the days, right? And, and that was that was before I was really taking things too seriously. It was more just for fun. Um, I was going, and I met the guy who ran it. His name was Emars, and he um, he ended up just being like taking me under his wing and being like, "Hey, man, be part of our team. You're here all the time." And I was like, "Well, I run these lights. Like, do you want more lights at your party? Like, I'd love to run lights here and do club stuff. Like, I've never done it before, but you know, if you get me in for free and give me a couple of drinks, I'll bring all my gear and." That's kind of how it started. There was a VJ there at the time named Gels, and I hit him up, and uh, he was moving to California, and he basically gave me his job VJing at this party in the basement and doing these big dubstep acts. I mean, we had Dylan Francis coming through. We had uh, Mustard Pimp, uh, Rusco, a lot of those like underground dudes that were really big, but they weren't really big yet. They hadn't really hit it. The cusp was there. Skrillex had just come out. Avicii was about to get pumping. You know, it was like... We, this is pre the burst where I feel like EDM really took over America. So I think uh, for me, it was a lot of right place at the right time situation because that kid moved to California. I took over visuals, basically was traveling two hours from grad school in Western Mass every day, um, every week, rather. On Tuesday nights, we'd do this party in Boston for Throat, and then I'd drive back to Western Mass, get home at six in the morning and go to grad school at seven. Wow. So it sounds like you kind of developed this career, especially out of having good relationships with people. And uh, you said right place, right time. And I, you know, I think that's a lot of people with their careers is, you know, making sure you're in that position where when a push comes to shove, you're the next one in line. So that's awesome. Yeah, I think what really gets me is just I was so concentrated on being a high school teacher. I had never taken any classes on visual design or visual performance. I'd never really thought about the nightclub life. 
our industry. So it really just kind of latched on to me and I ended up drop, dropping out of grad school and kind of working in Boston and eventually started the company. That's great. And what year did you start uh, Night Ride Visuals? So uh, I had been doing Throat for all of 2010. Around October uh, 2010, I realized that there weren't many people doing what I was doing in the city. Um, and I started reaching out to other companies and stuff and uh, other clubs trying to get gigs, basically saying, hey, here's the deal. I know you might not have a video wall. Like, I know you might not need this now, but know that I'm the guy. Like, Hit me up when you need it. I'll be here for you. And, you know, for about that all of 2010, from the beginning until October, I had hit up so many clubs and people and no one was really getting back to me. And I think October was the breaking point where it was like, okay, a lot of those people started hitting me back. And I was like, this is going to be too much work for me. So around October 2010, I hired uh, my dude, Zach. Um, he uh, he tours with Cedric Gervais. That's his, his main client. He also does a lot with uh, Cheat Codes, the touring DJs. Um, and yeah, he, uh, he was my first employee and he's still, he's still with the team today, 10 years later, but, uh, that was when the company basically started. Wow. Very cool. So tell me about your favorite and least favorite things about what you do. Uh, okay. Well, easy. It's a, that's an easy one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite things. I mean, I love traveling. I love that energy. I love being on the go. I love, uh, you know, just, just keeping, keeping my body moving and, and, and checking out different places. I love the exhilaration. I still get excited every show. I mean, I've done over 600 Steve Aoki shows now. I, I run the company. I could quit Steve and just run the company, but I do it because I love it. You know, I, I love being out there. I love working with the team. I love working with Steve. And, um, you know, it's really just getting to see all the different places and, and, and get to witness just the, the, the raw energy that comes from these crowds it, it really drives me to keep keep touring um but obviously there's always downfalls to touring i talk about mental health and touring a lot um after about three years of touring full-time with steve doing every show in every country 62 countries a year 280 shows um i really got worn out and about three years in i, I took a break and was like you know I, I needed it i think uh you you move so fast you forget about the things in life that are really important to you um, I, I stopped sure. playing, I stopped playing and writing music. I hadn't seen my family in so long. Um, you know, I had a relationship that was struggling because of the touring and, um, as well as friends, family, birthdays, weddings, funerals, you know, people, they just see the rock star lifestyle to it. They see you traveling, they see you on private jets and they think, okay, cool. This guy's living the life, but you know, you're missing so much at home that, uh, you tend to lose track and the time moves fast. So. About three years in, I took a break and I hired uh, my guy Cam, um, who works in Boston, to tour with Steve in Europe and Asia. And I've been doing mostly the U.S. runs now. So, sure. What is the biggest thing that you regret missing? Oh man, I mean, there's so much, so many things. I mean, <laughs> don't mean to put you on the spot. No, Just, no. Uh, trying no, to get a better okay. sense of where you're coming from, you know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's 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 a combination of all the little things, man, more so than like one big event that I that I look down on. You know, if it was I mean, the real realistically, if it was super important to me, I, I would have I should have made it happen, you know, and I look back and it's more just like my grandma's birthdays, you know, family gatherings. I've missed Christmas a couple times. I, I've missed, you know, uh, I had I've 
always worked New Year's. Ten years now VJing, I've never not worked New Year's. So, you know, having that off and seeing my friends get to go out and have a good time. You know, people stop inviting you places. They don't. They know you can't make it. They know you're too busy. And I think that's the biggest wear and tear. Right. Now, do you think that's a symptom of success? Like, is that something that, you know, it's unavoidable once you get to the level that you're at now? Or how have you how have you coped with that? I think that when someone comes from a place where they're not very successful, um, you know, like ever, everyone says, when you start from nothing, I think uh, it's hard to put the brakes on and realize what you're missing until until it really wears you down. And for me personally, um, I believe that everyone who gets successful will have that issue if they don't recognize it. You could you can make the time. You can make the time to see your family. You can make the time to spend time with your friends and still be successful. And I think people, when they're in the middle of that hustle and that grind, they, they just are eyes on the prize, narrow-minded. And sometimes you need that. You need that to make it, you know? And I, I'm so grateful for where I'm at. I think it's just important that once you get to the point that you're happy financially and happy with what you've built that you make sure you're balancing your life well because if you're not balancing your life well and you're not happy what's the point sure yeah i i mean that speaks volumes because success is nothing without the people around you 100 percent, man and, and i wouldn't be here without the people that were around me so it's you know it's it's going back and appreciating those people and the time you have with them and making sure that you know reminding yourself that your time with those people is just as, as important as your job and your hustle and everything you're doing. And, and you don't have to lose one to gain in the other. You can have both. Right. So you mentioned a little bit about that kind of rock star lifestyle. Um, and without getting uh, too specific into that, um, what are some of the things that, that you saw there that kind of worried you? Yeah, I mean, on the road is tough. You see, you meet a lot of people. You see people struggling. I think I'm really lucky that that Steve and the team were very clean. And, and you know, Steve's 100% sober. He doesn't drink or do any drugs or do anything like that. Um, so he doesn't really like to party, which means we all end up, you know, really concentrating on rest and self-care on tour. Um, but I've definitely run into other touring artists, and I, I won't name names, but people that struggle with drugs and addiction and you know, I see it in touring teams all the time where they're just getting wasted or, or getting too high or, you know, whatever their situation is. And it's it's sad to see, you know, especially with what happened with Avicii and, you know, mental health being such a big core part of this industry now um, that wasn't necessarily there before. I think that, uh, you know, people get glamorized. They see the free liquor and the free drugs or whatever their situation is and they, they indulge when really you have to remember this is a job at the end of the day. And if you want to make it and you don't want to, you know, end up killing yourself, you have to be aware that that isn't the route to take. Sure. And I think too, like from seeing um, at least recordings of some of the shows that you've put on and that uh, Steve has put on, it seems to me like a better show. Like if when you are a hundred percent focused on your craft and making sure that what you're putting out is as high quality as it can be and there's no distraction of drugs or alcohol it just seems like it it it's a better experience for everyone involved for sure i mean let's be real man if, if especially with the amount of shows we do if we were getting drunk every night or or you know doing drugs we wouldn't be able to put on the shows we put on we wouldn't be capable of touring as much as we do i mean we'd, we'd all be a wreck <laughs> we're already you know 
uh, you know, trying to stay as well rested as we can given our schedule. And I mean, obviously now we're all getting a lot of rest. We'll get into that, but, um, you know, I think, uh, it's important if you want to put on the best show you can to have a clear head and the artist really sets that precedent. You know, if the artist is a partying guy and he, he, he loves to tour because he loves to party, you know, the crew is going to follow suit. So I'm just lucky we have a leader that is so determined on, you know, work. And, and that's, that's always been Steve's structure. So. That's fantastic. And you mentioned uh, Avicii a couple of times. Did you have a relationship with Avicii and, and kind of walk me through, um, what you went through uh, when the news came out. Sure. Um, so when, obviously 2010 was when everything kind of got started. Um, by 2011 and 12, I was doing uh, a lot of the bigger nightclubs in Boston. Uh, Bijou was my first. And then I kind of moved on from there, was doing a little bit of Ocean Club, which was this big ocean uh, side venue that fit like 2,000 people. Um, and they used to have a lot of the big guys come through like Avicii. And that's kind of where I first started working with bigger DJs um, and getting my name out there. And then uh, I was working with this touring crew called Groove Boston, which they were doing like college shows. And I met this guy, Ed, um, Ed Slapik. He, uh, he does a lot of big stuff. And um, he actually hired me to do an Avicii show in 2013. Um, just a one off. Uh, it was in, I think it was the University of Rhode Island, but I'm not, I'm not sure. It was so long ago. Um, and it was just the one show. And they had me set up on stage, kind of off to the right, like side stage. And I was running visuals. And I remember I looked over when Avicii went on and he looked over at me. And uh, he kind of like looked at me confused, like, why is that kid all the way on stage on the side there? And uh, and, I, and then I was like, oh, man, maybe this isn't where I should be. You know what I mean? Like, I just went kind of wherever I, I thought I was supposed to go. And um, he looked over at his manager and tapped him. And this is he's ducking down behind the DJ booth about to start his set. And it points to the manager. And the manager points to the video wall behind him. And Avicii looks over at me, smiles, and gives me, like, a thumbs up. And I was like, oh, man, like, this is huge. And this is 2013. I mean, Levels is massive at this point. Like, he is – he was growing so, so fast. And – I remember that was probably one of the first moments where I really had an overwhelming sense of like, wow, like I've made it, I've done something big. Like this is huge. I get to, I get to work with an artist so influential. Um, and I hadn't really worked with him or, or talked to him or thought of him after that show until, until the situation happened, you know, where he, where he had killed himself. And I think it hit me less on a personal level of, of someone who's worked with Avicii and more on a personal level of just knowing what touring can do to your mind if, if you're not careful and knowing you know seeing artists that get pushed too far all the time that are getting overworked by management or whatever the case is to try to make money um and i think that you know it's sad to see that so it, it hurt me in the sense of like okay like mental health is is clearly a thing and it definitely made me take a step back even more so and say okay i need to be aware of my own mental health because any of us can get to that point if you're not careful sure yeah and i mean you you've talked about mental health a couple different times um and kind of what touring puts you through even when you are like you mentioned with steve and and you guys are doing you know clean living and trying to get as much rest as possible um and i think it's an interesting situation uh, me personally as i know millions of other people were really connected to um, a lot of the music that uh, Avicii was putting out. Um, and so for me and a lot of others, it felt like this weird disconnect. Like, 
you know, you never truly know the artist usually that is making this music that you're really bumping to and that you really vibe to. Um, and then to learn that they're having such issues and then eventually suicide um, was, you know, it's just devastating. So what what can other people in the industry do to kind of ensure that their mental health is is at a you know reasonable level while they're touring? Because it is such a stressful environment. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes with a lot of self-awareness, man. You know, it's easy to be blinded by the lights and the situation and just say, wow, like, I'm so grateful. I think it comes down to two things. It's checking in with the people you're working with and making sure they're aware of, of your situation, you know, um, and being honest and being honest with yourself and the, and the people around you, as well as being so self-aware. You know, I think for me, it was I always told myself when I took on the job and knew how many days I'd be working. It was okay. I need to be aware that when I'm not enjoying this and I'm not giving this its fullest effort, I need to take a step back. Cause not only, it doesn't only hurt me, it hurts the show. It hurts, it hurts the business. It hurts, it hurts everybody. You know, it, you need to be a hundred percent in the game. And if you're not, then you need to take a step aside and let somebody else take over. And that's, that's basically what I did. I think I sat in a hotel one day and was like, man, I'm not happy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm physically experiencing depression. You know, I need to, do something about this and, and the first thing I need to do is get home and spend time with people I care about and I think if you take that self-awareness and trust in your team then you'll be in a good place I, I was really lucky that Steve's team said okay you can you can take a step back and we'll we'll work with your other guy and you know when you're ready come back as hard as you want to or you know let us know which dates you can work kind of situation so if you have a supportive team and a supportive family I think um, I think that's that's the core of being Recon, you know, recognizing your mental health. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think it's really important to have supportive people around you, um, especially with everything going on right now, and just you know to help you get through the day and make sure you're making good choices. So I kind of want to switch topics a little bit and switch themes. And do you have any funny stories of uh, your experience VJing all these years? Oh man, funny stories. I mean, anytime you have to poop is really funny. Uh, there's definitely, uh, <laughs> you know, I've talked to other PJs about it and it's like, you know, what do you do in that situation? I mean, you're in the middle of a two hour set, you can't leave, you know? So, uh, that's always a little, it doesn't happen often, but if it does, you know, and I, I personally poop my pants, uh, running from airport to airport before, um, that's not fun. <laughs> And, uh, you know, this one time I just had, you know, left one flight and it was just a quick layover between the other one. And I thought I could make it and it just, I sneezed and it, it came out the back and it was not a good time. Uh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I got, food, I got, I got food poisoning really badly in Malta a couple of years ago. And I, uh, I remember I was so sick and I ended up getting like an IV and I still did the show and I had a bucket next to me. And of course, for some reason, usually most shows with Steve, I'm at front of house, which is in the crowd. It's kind of far from the stage, um, staring at the stage. So you get a good view, but at this venue, the night I was sick, I was next to Steve in the DJ booth, like shoulder to shoulder. And I had a bucket to my right and the whole crowd's looking and they can all see me. And I was just like, man, don't puke. Don't whatever you do. Don't puke. And uh, luckily I did not, but I did puke on the jet ride to the next tour stop about seven times and the pilot had to take the bag for me. So that's, oh, uh, no. yeah. And then of course, uh, Steve has this thing called Aoki's world, um, which is this YouTube, uh, video, uh, sort of documentary of everything he does on tour. Um, 
and they had a little segment in an episode about me getting food poisoning and it was just like me sick puking on the jet like sitting in the toilet like all this stuff and i i didn't know it was going to come out but i saw the footage and i you know i thought it was funny and then uh we were in vegas one time and a fan came up to me and was like hey aren't you the guy who puked on the jet (laughs) i was like it's like man is this how the fan base knows me now i'm just that guy who pukes on the jet you know so uh that was pretty funny Wow, that that's incredible. I can't even imagine like like have first of all having to go to the bathroom during a massive set, but then being like sick during it and having to be right next to Steve in the DJ booth and just like not not feeling good cuz I feel like for me the last place I want to be when I'm not feeling good is somewhere loud and somewhere with a lot of people and you had like i'm on stage in front of everybody it is loud it's pumping that's that's insane it was it was pretty nuts that was one of the craziest nights vjing for me because i was just so tired and so sick but you know the show must go on man i mean what are you gonna do it's like you're either gonna be there you're not you know and i i didn't want to uh take off a night just because i felt a little ill sometimes you're just gonna suck it up you know that's some dedication right there. That's fantastic. So tell me, uh, when did you first realize that coronavirus was going to be affecting your industry in a major way? Oh, man. Honestly, I thought it was bullshit. Um, I was one of those people that was like, this is the government just overreacting. This is ridiculous. There's no way bad things are going to happen. There's no way we're going to end up canceling shows. You know, it's just too much money involved there's no way that that would happen we were i was in the middle of the steve aoki north american bus tour uh with timmy trumpet and uh a few other artists and um you know we brought this big big production we had a semi truck following us around we had three tour buses and um we were slated to drive to chicago forget where we were the night before chicago but we were slated to drive to chicago for a show And uh, we had a show in Vegas in between. So what we were doing is while the bus was traveling on days off, instead of taking a day off, um, the core team, which would be Steve, myself, photographer, videographer, uh, tour manager, and and, uh, assistant production manager, we'd all uh, fly out to Vegas to do these shows. So we flew to Vegas. And I remember our videographer, Chris, uh, looked at me and was like, hey, man, like, you're not going to take your bags with you? And I was like, why? Like, we'll get them. We can leave them on the bus. Like, we're coming back. He's like, what if we don't come back? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, what if it all gets canceled? I was like, there's no way it's going to get canceled. So I left my bag on the bus, flew to Vegas, and we did the Vegas show. And the next day we found out that everything was canceled, the whole the rest of the tour, which was still like four, five, like five weeks left of it. Um, so, yeah, we uh, I ended up flying home from Vegas to San Diego and I had to get them to ship me all my, my bag and my stuff from the bus. So I ended up feeling pretty stupid. And I think that was the first moment I was like, wow, this is serious. The real big moment for me life-wise was when the NBA canceled. Um, I think when the NBA shut down, I was like, wow, like if the sports teams aren't going to play and there's so much more money in that than the music industry, then there's no chance that we're going to be doing anything anytime soon. That's insane. So what right now in your industry like is it just complete shutdown what are they thinking in terms of like when things are going to reopen is everything being rescheduled and like what are you missing right at this moment uh because of everything going on with COVID 19 
Yeah, I mean, we run seven nightclubs in Boston, and all of them are kind of just on hold waiting for, you know, the state to tell them what they're allowed to do. Um, I think that right now a lot of people are just working on rebuilding. Like you said, a lot of shows are getting rescheduled. Obviously, we were in the middle of this bus tour with Steve, and uh, those dates are going to end up getting rescheduled, like, from what I've heard. And uh, the big festivals are coming up in the summer, and I know a lot of those are also getting rescheduled and canceled left and right. Um, so it's just a matter of everyone's adjusting because the thing is, even if everything reopens in, let's say July or August, the festivals don't have a lot of time to prepare or risk trying to sell tickets in, in the chance that it does get canceled. It's, it's not worth the risk. So a lot of places are just shutting down. And I think that we won't see any real stability until July, August at their earliest. Sure. Now, if you were to give yourself some advice about everything going on two months ago and the and the, the past version of you, what would you tell past Jay? Two months ago? Oh man, I would tell me to I would tell myself to pack a lot less clothes on that bus tour. <laughs> <laughs> I think I mean I we're in a really good I'm I'm really lucky I'm in a situation where I work for myself. Um and can adapt really easily. Um, you know, the fact that we're all out of work right now and everyone's struggling sucks. Um, I probably would have spent a lot less money in the past two months if I'd known that I'd be buckling down. I'm uh, sure. But, you know, I'm lucky to have a good job and, and to have a situation where I'm financially stable enough to kind of take this time and be creative and, and use it to rebuild. So we're working on marketing and, and kind of adapting to make sure that we're making use of this time as opposed to you know, treating it like a vacation or, you know, something like that, especially with so many other people struggling. Sure. Now, uh, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, um, but I really like your perspective in terms of uh, luck versus hard work. So a lot of people see you and they see you touring with Steve Aoki or some other large artists and, you know, all the cool stuff that you get to do. Um, what is your reaction when people, you know, tell you, oh, you're so lucky? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, uh, most of the people who say you're so lucky are people that that um, look up to the people that we've worked with. Um, but they don't understand that it, it, my current situation has nothing to do with luck. And I think that it's a misconception. It's 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 almost insulting and people don't realize it. And it's it's OK because they're, they're trying to compliment you. So it's like, you can't take it too offensively, but I've always seen it as kind of a bullshit thing to say because it has nothing to do with luck. It's hard work. You know, um, when any of us are in this situation where we work with celebrities or work with big artists, it's because we've put in work and shown ourselves to be valuable in this field, whether it be photography, videography, VJing in our situation or animating or what any, whatever the job is. You know, I think that it's a lot more valuable to tell someone, hey, man, it's so good to see all that hard work pay off than to say, hey, you're so lucky because it just feels like it demeans the, the countless hours and sacrifices you've put in to get to that point. Well, thank you so much for coming on Tots. And uh, I really like your perspectives and I think you're a cool dude. So uh, how can people that are listening to the podcast find you and, and follow your stuff? Awesome. Yeah. I mean, the easiest route is night ride visuals. Uh, we have nightridevisuals.com, um, Instagram, night ride visuals. It's a 
Uh, Night Ride starts with an N. Some people confuse it and put a K in front, but it starts with an N. It's not like uh, <laughs> it's not like Knights in Armor, you know. But uh, yeah, if you search Night Ride Visuals online, follow us on Instagram. We'll always be posting our coolest stuff there. So fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. I'm gonna go eat a, a large handful of tater tots in your honor. I really appreciate that. I love that. <laughs> All right, that is just about going to do it for this episode of Tots. Thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate it, and it's fantastic to have you here. I also want to do a huge thank you to Jay. I really loved having him on the show. I think he's got some great perspectives on things, and uh, and uh, he's had some accidents that we talked about. Um, I really enjoyed that interview, and I definitely think we'll have him on in the future. So listen, I know times are tough right now with everything going on with COVID-19, And quarantine sucks. It just sucks. The thing that I miss the most is probably being able to just like drive to Baltimore and hang out at the aquarium or just like in the inner harbor. Like that's one of my favorite places on earth. It's my favorite city. And I'm I'm really missing that right now. My sponsor for this episode, Studio 15, truly understands what that's like. And so we've partnered up for this episode to do something good for you. So starting today, TOTS listeners can get 15% off a map of their favorite place. These maps are beautiful. They're meant to be hung on your wall because they are truly art pieces, and their colors will catch eyes. They, they're gorgeous. I currently have one of Baltimore hanging in my apartment, and I love looking at that thing. Sometimes I feel like I could do it all day. It's just, it's fantastic. It's definitely my favorite piece that I have on the wall. So... If you want to get your own of your favorite place that you wish that you could really travel to right now, go to www.juanitas.etsy.com and use code STAYSAFE at checkout. They can help you get the nicest looking map and it's going to look great on your wall. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want to listen to the other episodes, we can be found literally anywhere that you can find any other podcast. We are literally listed on everything. You can also go to one of our two websites, totspodcast.com or marketwithben.com forward slash tots. There you will find every single episode, some bonus content, and we're also doing a little bit of a promotion. All right, so... When we release these episodes, we have a lot of content that we unfortunately have to cut just to make sure that we are getting in all of the best material for you. But we also understand that some people would really like to hear the unedited versions of some of these episodes, especially if they happen to be interviews. I know personally with this interview with Jay, we did leave out a lot of stuff just to work within our time constraints. If you would like to listen to that full unedited interview that we had with Jay, you can go to our Patreon. You can find that on totspodcast.com and you can actually become a patron of Tots Podcast. That will give you access to a ton of bonus content as well as some of those unedited interviews that we tell all. So please check that out if you are interested. I hope everyone has a great rest of their week and a fantastic weekend and I will see you Monday morning.